Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Welcome to Magister Dixit, a podcast that invites you on a journey into realms of expertise, imagination, and occultism. Delve deep into the minds of those that have dedicated their lives to mastering their crafts and how having an esoteric or supernatural influence has shaped that path. In each episode, we will engage with magisters, true masters of their respected fields, as they share their unparalleled insights, unconventional knowledge, and their unique perspectives. Venture into the mystical as we converse with filmmakers, musicians, and renowned authors. Listen to their perspectives on their respected disciplines and how being a practitioner of occultism has influenced their craft. Remember, in the realm of knowledge, Magister Dixit, the master has spoken. Ralph Techmeyer is a renowned figure in occultism. Known as Frater VD and Frater UD, originating from Heliopolis, Egypt, his journey unfolded through key affiliations with magical orders like the Fraternus Saturni and the IOT. Operating the occult bookstore Horus in Bonn from 1979 to 1981, Tectemeyer formed the Bond Group, enriching his insights into magical practices and community dynamics. Notably, he pioneered cyber magic and founded ice magic, leading to a significant schism in the IOT in the early 1990s. His written works cover diverse occult topics, and his translations, including Peter J. Carroll's Lieber Null, have influenced the dissemination of magical knowledge. Tettemeyer's contributions in the occult field, his development of unique magical concepts, and his involvement in significant events within magical orders have left a lasting impact. Let's welcome Frater VD, Ralph Tettemeyer, to the show. Ralph, thank you so much for uh, coming on Magister Dixit. Uh, well, thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. And uh, the first thing I'd like to ask, Ralph, is if you could share just a little bit of your early life growing up in uh, Helopolis, Egypt. Uh, can you speak about some of the experiences or moments that uh, led to your interest in occult or esoteric practices? Well, all right. It's a fairly long life. <laughs> I was yeah. born uh, back in 1952 uh, in uh, Egypt. And Heliopolis uh, is actually, today, it's just a neighborhood of Kairos. At that time, it was kind of an extension. Well, it's the old uh, Heliopolis city there. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was, was a German diplomatic service, hence my uh, extra German uh, upbringing <laughs> and birth and everything. Uh, how did I come to the occult? Well, it started off when I was nine years old. I had an uncle who... Uh, was you know felt he was fairly young uh up and coming uh you know uh kind of management uh, kind of thing he was uh invested in and so he was all about self-optimization all the time and uh, then he discovered yoga and uh, uh there was no end ranting about it and uh, i got interested and um 
shortly after my father was posted to, to uh, Khartoum, Sudan, and uh, we traveled there uh, to the German embassy there, and we traveled there by boat, uh, freighter actually, which took weeks and weeks. And uh, in order to uh, cover for that time, uh, I actually bought that same yoga book my uncle was always raving about, and plus a little book uh, on uh, auto-suggestion and auto-hypnosis. And uh, during that uh, long, something like six weeks trip on that freighter, uh, I actually started started that, uh, basically self-studying. Uh, started off with a bit of yoga, you know, deep relaxation, basic exercises, a little bit of meditation and so on, plus auto-hypnosis. And uh, never looked back from that. Uh, I mean, where I was at the time, you know, it was five years in Sudan, later on a year in Pakistan. Uh, and this being the, the 60s, uh, there wasn't such a hell of a lot of literature available on all things occult. So I latched on to whatever was uh, I could get my hands on. And uh, later on, uh, this became a more in-depth study of the uh, subject. Well, certainly, uh, as a young boy, then you must have seen the pyramids and some of the the ruins of uh, Cairo and Egypt. Actually, no, that I, I, I have seen them all, but that came a hell of a lot later when I actually organized my own magical uh, mystery tours to Egypt. Uh, you know, I think about 99% of the inhabitants of Cairo have never seen the pyramids. It's like people uh, that live outside of New York City that have never been to the city. Exactly, exactly that. And uh, it was uh, quite similar there. I mean, my, my parents were later on, you know, we traveled a lot in the um, Middle East and Africa and parts of Asia. Uh, later on, my parents were always about uh, visiting all kinds of uh, tourist sites and stuff like that. But uh, during my time in Cairo, I mean, I lived there for the first six years of my life. Uh, little of that sort really happened, or if so, I don't remember. And uh, plus, there was the Suez War in between and stuff like that, where right. you were busy with other stuff, not uh, really sightseeing. What, what what an amazing time traveling that must have been as a youth with your parents going to Pakistan and the Sudan and and all that, just like uh, you know, uh, just taken out of that Western culture. Yes and no. I mean, uh, take Sudan as a as an example. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, this was obviously not a Western culture. However, at home we we always spoke German, my parents and I. So I never lost, uh, you know, uh, I lost that contact to that uh, that part of my heritage. School was uh, in English and in Arabic. Well, I was basically in in, in English speaking schools. And uh, so I learned that as a second language fairly early on. And um, uh, my Arabic was more or less uh, nothing formal, more or less, you know, kind of uh, colloquial street Arabic, as they call it. But uh, so it was always sort of in between worlds, right? Because uh, I was obviously as a diplomat's child, I was in a privileged position. I mean, uh, uh, and... Uh, a foreigner there, but in a privileged position uh, due to my parents, of course. 
And uh, on the other hand, I did have a lot of contact with the locals and uh, it was uh, quite quite a mixed environment, of course, overall. Plus it was, um, especially Sudan and uh, so was Egypt actually, and Sudan and Pakistan, very Muslim countries. Whereas uh, I was uh, socialized as a Roman Catholic. Uh, but there were at that time fairly liberal um, togetherness uh, kind of scenarios. For example, in uh, Khartoum, Sudan, I visited uh, or I attended Comboni College, which was run by Catholic priests, Italians, most of them. And uh, which, because that used to be the number one college uh, there, I don't know whether it's, uh, it is still today. I know it's still there, but. And so, uh, yeah, it was very international and uh, very uh, a mixed cultural upbringing, all in all. Now, how long did you stay on the road or traveling with your parents as like, uh, uh, you know, ambassadors for Germany? Did you eventually return home, as, as, you know, as a Yes, when I was when I was uh, turning 16, I was because of the, uh, the the school situation. My parents thought it would be better for me if I actually graduated from a German uh, um, college. Uh, so when I was uh, 16, uh, I uh, went to Germany to boarding school where I spent the next four years uh, graduating after which, uh, well, from that point on, I never left Europe really. Uh, again, except for travel, of course, but um, uh, I've been living in Europe ever since. Uh, firstly, in Germany, I spent two years in the German army doing military service. Uh, then later on, uh, I pushed, pushed on to uh, university and uh, studied comparative literature in which I mastered, along with English literature and um, Portuguese uh, a philology, philology, and uh, well, I've been living in. I lived in Germany for a long time, then later, way later on, sixteen year for sixteen years in Belgium, two years Malta, about half a year in Portugal, and now I've, I'm in uh, Austria. What an interesting tapestry of places to live. Yeah, uh, it's not boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most well, definitely boring where I live, uh, about, mm. about uh, 50 miles uh, east of Pittsburgh. We're in the rolling green hills of Pennsylvania, which uh, but actually... That, but that sounds lovely, man. I mean, it really sounds nice. I mean, you've got a reason to be there, don't yes. you? Yes, I do. <laughs> and, and it's funny because there's actually a really uh, German connection here. A lot of the mm. towns mm. in this area and a lot of the earlier settlers uh, were from Germany. And Pennsylvania remind, Dutch, yeah. I, yes, and, it remind, that, yeah. and the hills reminded them of Germany. In fact, there's a yeah. ski resort close to here, and uh, lots of Quakers too, right? Yes, yes. So yeah, there's yeah. There, there's an intro, uh, Pennsylvania has its definitely uh, its different religious uh, people who escape religious persecution that came out here. There's a yeah. lot of different diverse groups. Yeah, well, a lot of the USA was uh, actually founded by those, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, not, your French, not, your French Huguenots, not, and your exactly, and the Puritans, of course, from England and uh, or uh, Great Britain, as it was called, and uh, many fact, others. There's a community here. There's actually a German community 
I can't remember the name. It's a very, I would have to look back. It's a, it's a very commune-esque type of society. And if you were to see the pictures, I'll have to send it to you later on. Uh, yes, please do. Double back. And they wear, I mean, it looks like something out of Sound of Music. They, you know, they're all dressed like Heidi and, you know, <laughs> very immersed in, you know, uh, Germanic culture. And it's just amazing. And they're kind of onto themselves out here that way, too. It, like, it's like know, the Amish, right? Yes, sir. Very much yeah, like yeah. the Amish. Mm-hmm. So as you became a uh, young gentleman and you were going to boarding school, how did your... Uh, your interests in the occult change. You you were introduced to yoga, and how did it lead up into more esoteric practices? Well, uh, initially, I was actually more or less at home, uh, or felt at home, uh, in the philosoph- philosophically, you might say, uh, uh, in Eastern cultures. I was more far more interested, you know, in Buddhism, Hinduism, or what is still called uh, Hinduism. I'm aware of the colonial associations of that <laughs> term, but. But never mind. Um, well, let's say Vedic, Vedic uh, culture, a uh, bit more, not not so much, but a bit more in uh, of uh, Taoism and stuff like that. So it that's where where I dabbled in, you might say, for about ten years. It was only later, in my early twenties, that I actually began to discover the Western traditions, uh, namely alchemy and uh, well, and ceremonial magic. Uh, and a lot of this was uh, was basically autodidactically, and you know, no teachers, no no formal memberships uh, in any you know organizations or orders of any kind, uh, at least not at that point. And um, so it was basically uh, books. Maybe occasionally you'd find some find someone who would be interested in the same kind of topics, and you'd. You'd have uh, a lot of sharing experiences there, but uh, uh, on the practical level, I actually dug into, let's say, Western magic as a kind of blanket term uh, only when I was at university. When I uh, um, I was actually looking for a, for a topic for my dissertation, which never came about in my doctorate in uh, English literature at the time, and I thought uh, combining my academic interests with um, my personal interest in the occult, uh, I would do something on uh, the occult in uh, in English literature, um, and that gave me a, the perfect pretext, you know, to uh, uh, go hop over to London and uh, Foyle's bookshop had actually at that time about a day or two before they had actually restocked their entire. Uh, their entire Alistair Crowley library, and uh, I bought it all up in <laughs> one fell one fell swoop because hey, now I had a reason to, <laughs> and uh, plus a lot of other other um, basically English and some American uh, magical literature, uh, and then I started to dig into that, and uh, that actually got me going on the practical level as well. I mean, beyond you know yoga and uh, uh, Eastern meditation uh, kind of things. But those things went very much hand in hand with what you were learning about Western uh, cultism, like uh, Golden Dawn style uh, learning. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, Golden Dawn was uh, was very uh, formative for me initially. Uh, even more so was actually, uh, and that's where the more anarchic element creeps in, uh, was uh, someone like Orson Osmond Spare, who would basically, and we, I mean, we're talking the... Uh, 
uh, the mid to end 70s here who had basically just been discovered or rediscovered in terms of, uh, you know, Kenneth Grant writing about him and publishing mm -hmm. stuff. And, uh, uh, and uh, that really got me going. And uh, I'm not sure if, if Sigil Magic hadn't worked so uh, tremendously right from the outset, whether I'd really have stuck with magic, but uh, it did. And uh, from then on, I was hooked and uh, never looked back. That's very interesting that you say that too, because the first successful type of working that I ever did that I had to step back and go, wow, there's really something here was doing sigil work. Oh, really? Yeah, well, you're not the only one, apparently. But, but, you're, but, but you're right as far as it was like, a, I, I, I got a response very quickly. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and yeah. That, that definitely uh, was a catalyst for me to just like uh, want to gobble up more. Yeah, it was for me too. It was uh, kind of, you know, like a lightning bolt. It hits me and uh, uh, I was fairly sure that this stuff was real more or less, but, uh, but when you actually encounter it, you know, uh, uh, physically. And, firsthand. Uh, yeah, firsthand. Yeah, firsthand and, and, and absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, then uh, it, it's kind of mind-boggling uh, initially, but uh, on the other hand, uh, to me at least, it was a motivation to keep going. Absolutely. Now, uh, you had your initial interest in the occult. How did the journey unfold within becoming part of an occult community, particularly your involvement with the uh, Fraternus Saturni and the IOT? Well, initially, uh, uh, I actually created my own or our own occult community in a way back in 1979. Uh, uh, two uh, fellow students uh, of mine and myself, we decided to set up an occult bookshop in Bonn, Germany. Uh, why? Because we were all very much interested in that kind of literature. It was so hard to come by. and. Uh, and uh, so uh, we thought, yeah, let's let's make a venture of that as well. And I mean, we are, all, all three of us hadn't finished our studies yet. Uh, we all did eventually, but but uh, well, we took that on, and uh, that was quite successful. Not so much commercially; mm -hmm. <laughs> it actually took us about four years to get out of the red. But uh, but uh, it was successful in that uh, it obviously met a demand because there was lots of people flocking to that bookshop. Uh, that was that, that was the, that was the Horace bookstore. That was the Horace bookshop, right? Horace and, and we're and we're talking about the Bond Group, and you say you're three. And that friends. was that was how the Bond Group actually came about. It was basically all people who had met via that book bookstore mm -hmm. and um, on the premises. And uh, so uh, one day, you know, we just gathered together and. Uh, and said, "Hey, uh, let's let's uh, create this. What, what was later we called the Bond Group of uh, it was actually a workshop for experimental magic. Most of these, uh, not all of us, but most of them, we're we're about a dozen or more, you know. But uh, you know, varying membership uh, for about sure. about twelve to fifteen, about around that, not more." But um, there was people. There were people there who had been into you know, practical magic for ages, and others were absolute beginners, as was I actually at that time. And um, 
Uh, others were a bit more standoffish initially, but got into it. And, and uh, well, it was, as I said, exper about experimental magic. And um, so it was actually quite agnostic in terms of, you know, uh, ideology or, or uh, uh, metaphysical, uh, set metaphysical, um, to, you know, uh, goals or aims. Right. Basically, we just wanted to uh, to find out how does how does magic work and uh, how can we improve on it. And this is really the per the period that contributed to your understanding of working with magical practices within a community and the dynamics. That's right. Yeah, the it dynamics was within that community. Exactly. It was actually the first time I ever, uh, you know, went out from, you know, shifted from soul practitioner to someone who was working within a community. Uh, soul practitioning, practitioner stuff okay, went, went uh, on, of course, apart from that. I mean, we only met about, uh, I think it was every uh, fortnight. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, that uh, there was a different dynamic to it. But of course, there was a hell of a lot more input a, from from group, experienced a, people and a, people who were already pretty bright minds and and had a lot of you know innovative ideas of how to go about things. Well, I think it's also empowering to have just that group dynamic and all these ideas, and uh, also seeing other people that share that interest, but coming from different. Uh, different walks of life, or maybe they all have different things to bring to the table as well. Indeed, indeed, yes. And uh, plus, being, plus being being quite undogmatic about things, uh, the sky was uh, essentially the limit, the limit also was hell, if you, if you yeah. like. But, <laughs> well, I, I, guess, I guess in the mean and the way that I meant it also too, is there wasn't like an adept there that was teaching all of you. No, it was no, collectively, no. you guys were becoming adepts and learning the process yeah. uh, as a group. And it was it was quite uh, democratic or anarchic or whatever you want to call it. I mean, okay, some people were more active or more act activist about things than others, but uh, no, there was no there was no leader, there was no guru. It was all in you know by common consensus. And um, and it actually never happened, you know, like people trying to push forward and trying to become the the head honcho or mm -hmm. nothing, nothing of that sort ever occurred, uh, which uh, suited us all pretty well, I think, because uh, uh, none of us were, were were really given to serving. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I always uh, think the collect yeah. the collective is sometimes I feel. Uh... A better choice than an individual just kind of calling the direction that everybody's going to go. Well, uh, it, obviously, it depends on the individual, but uh, yes, and it also depends on which phase in your personal development you may be. Absolutely. But uh, so, uh, but anyway, for for me personally, uh, it was really uh, really great. From that, actually, evolved later on a, a magazine, which one of us. Uh, uh, set up and uh, Unicorn magazine in German, of course, and uh, lots of of the others helped along with that, um, making it launch and actually contributing articles and stuff. This was, you know, way before the internet, so, so uh, we <laughs> yeah, we ma magazine magazines were how you did that. that Indeed, you know. absolutely. Yeah, there was no other way, really. I mean, be and, even before podcasts, this would have been an interview. 
Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, in written form. Yes. And uh, and uh, so that was how we went about. And uh, basically what this did, I mean, this magazine was focused on the esoteric, not merely magic, but uh, magic was one one important uh, pillar within that uh, mag, mm -hmm. but uh, but it was more general as well. I mean, and uh, and what that actually accomplished was create, in a way, a kind of for at least for a while. Uh, there were eight, you know, all in all, there were thirteen uh, issues of that magazine. It was a quarterly, uh, which were to be published, uh, and um, it actually created a kind of magical scene within the German-speaking uh, world because the, there were lots of people, you know, individuals, small groups here, small groups there, but none of them were connected. Right, and uh, this magazine, kind of much like our, our bookstore had, you know, it kind of turned into a focus for a lot of these people, and that is how actually, because you asked about the Fraternitas Saturni, uh, uh, that is how actually contact was established by the by some people of the Fraternitas Saturni who actually contacted me, because uh, by that time I had published uh, quite quite a few articles uh, on magical topics, which they obviously liked so they approached and, you uh, they, so they approached me and uh, the actually the then time uh, grandmaster approached me and invited me to uh, to join the uh, the order and after some deliberation i decided to do so yeah now i do know a little about the uh, fraternus saturni uh, i had a previous guest uh, an artist uh, hagen von tulian and, yeah, yeah, uh, good friend of he, mine. Yeah. Oh, he is a guy. That's what I'm at. So he's a good. Well, I, I'm just enamored with his art. You know, he's just a mm -hmm. fantastic. So am I. Artist, so am I. And yeah. I just feel the power in it. So I had him uh, as a guest uh, two episodes ago, and he was explaining to me how the Fraternus Saturni is it the oldest German order, or it's a uh, uh, very old mm -hmm. order, but uh, in continuity, well, it's ne it's never stopped. Yeah, in a few years' time, we'll have uh, our centenary. But uh, uh, well, uh, oh, German order. Okay, it depends on how you how you rate the OTO. Uh, is the, was it an Austrian or a German order? Uh, the OTO is a bit older than the Fraternity Saturni. But uh, but apart from that, yes. Uh, well, it just the fact that it's a German order keeps it kind of. Uh, it, it, it's it, it's not inclusive in the way that you've uh, put out. Uh, looking to uh, have English-speaking people understand it, or French, or anything—it's just strictly a a German order. Well, it's it's not by definition. Actually, we're quite open to everyone. I mean, but but uh, the problem is that due to lack of personnel. I mean, hey, I, I've been working as a professional translator most of my life, and so I know. I, I think I know a bit about uh, what that actually means. Mm -hmm. uh, having to translate all the stuff the Fraternitas Attorney has, has accumulated all, over almost 100 years, uh, it's, it's something we are simply not up to because we don't have uh, enough people to do it. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, and we're actually, we 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 have, uh, for example, we have um, a couple of American members as well. But they're but they're both. Uh, um, is that Doctor Steve? Is that Doctor Steve? Doctor Stephen Flowers? Uh, he's not, but uh, but I wouldn't uh, wouldn't. Um, 
I confirm that anyway because I'm not uh, permitted to uh, give out uh, you know the names of, of people uh, without their prior consent. So, but uh, but no, he's not. Uh, Did he also uh, write a book on the uh, fraternus fraternal? Yes, in two editions actually, and I uh, I was invited to contribute an introduction to the second edition of it. Uh, Fire and Ice was the original title, and. Um, uh, the uh, second edition's uh, Fraternity Attorney. That's right. Uh, anyway, uh, anyway, but the the problem is uh, is that uh, in order to be a member, you have to be fluent in in German at least, because otherwise, uh, oh, I'm afraid we can't service you. Uh, but it's not that we wouldn't want to, but uh, there's just not enough people. The resources. Uh, take, yes. ex exactly, exactly. Human resources, really. Interesting. And do you think that Dr. Flowers' book on the Fraternus Saturni is a uh, fair uh, display of what the organization is? Uh, it is uh, up until uh, it's actually something he he himself has acknowledged uh, many times over. It is up until 1970. Okay. Uh, after that. Uh, the uh, FS took uh, a lot of, you know, well, t twists and turns and this and that and the other. And it's it's certainly not, uh, it, let's put it this way, uh, it does reflect the spirit of the fraternity attorney as it is today as well. Yes, absolutely. But in terms of, you know, uh, technical details and, and so on, um, um, his sources end with about 1970, and um, uh, beyond that, uh, there's some update. There's some updating to it that would. Yeah, yeah, and plus, uh, I must say, I'm I'm actually glad it uh, that that there was updates because uh, uh, the order, especially in its late later years. I mean, after Grigori's death, um, I mean the founder's death, uh, wasn't really in the best of shape for quite a while and uh, that has all changed dramatically and um, uh, when I joined something like 40, oh, 40 plus years ago, uh, actually I was invited to join by the then time Grandmaster in order to help change it to uh, what it has become today and uh, terms, you know, like things, things like uh, uh, what you won't find today anymore, uh, hopefully, I mean, touch wood. <laughs> um, I know uh, pe people vying for uh, for authority, for uh, uh, becoming the, uh, the grandmaster or uh, uh, trying to control other people, trying to, you know, uh, being dogmatic about stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, all that has uh, evaporated and uh, good riddance. Yes. Yeah, sometimes that stuff can kind of erode an institution. Absolutely. Now, uh, tell let's talk a little bit about the IoT and how you came to be associated with that. Well, when uh, I was still running my bookshop, uh, a friend of mine came and showed me uh, Peter Carroll's Liber Null, which he had. Uh, um, purchased in the in the UK mm -hmm. and uh, reading that I was actually flabbergasted because uh, I thought it was an extremely good book and especially because it adopted not only a pragmatic approach towards magic which I was very much interested in but also because 
uh, chaos magic as presented therein uh, was uh, uh, a very undogmatic and uh, to the point, to the roots kind of approach, very minimalistic. And uh, I really loved that. Now, I tried to get in contact with, uh, with the author, for, and, uh, but he wasn't available in the UK. As I late, learned later on, he was actually traveling the world at the time. He was probably hanging around in Australia some, <laughs> at that time or India. And uh, so I wasn't able to contact him, but I thought that this book was so important that I, would, that I wanted to actually uh, have, it, uh, have it presented to the German reading public. And so I basically, basically set up my own publishing firm uh, based on Live on Null. And of course, that was technically a, via, a copyright violation because I had no permission by the author. And uh, so, <laughs> so uh, in order to make, uh, make up for that, uh, I, I uh, included the paragraph right in front, you know, before the intro and everything, uh, stating that we had been trying to get hold of the copyright owner and uh, would said owner, please uh, contact us uh, so we could <laughs> set settle the rights and royalties and stuff like that, which we eventually, which later happened. But, but that was how I got involved with Chaos Magic first. And then later on, uh, some years later, actually, I was, wasn't living in Bonn anymore at the time. Was, I was living in uh, West Berlin, as it was uh, then way before unification, reunification, um, I suddenly got a, well, a fairly irritated letter from one Mr. <laughs> Peter Carroll in the UK, who had uh, somehow got hold of my address, um, uh, who wasn't too amused about uh, my pirating his book. <laughs> uh, he was right about that, technically speaking. No, pro uh, absolutely. So uh, anyway, we got in touch. I invited him over, and he visited me for a weekend in uh, Berlin. Uh, stayed at my place, and uh, I did a long interview with him, which I later published in Unicorn magazine. And uh, long story short, we we decided uh, we'd uh, stay in contact, and later on, uh, he came up with uh, what would later on be termed Liber Pactionis, uh, basically a structure for the magical pact of the Illuminates of Tanatros. Uh, to make clear, the IoT was mentioned in Liber Null, but de facto it was re it was really more or less of uh, kind of imaginary uh, order. It, it didn't really exist in terms of a working order, you know, with uh, with a steady uh, agenda and curriculum or stuff like that. It was more or less uh, an invention. Uh, yes, there was a group of of uh, British chaos magicians, of course, who uh, were more or less, who more or less made up that IoT, but it was there wasn't anything formal, and so. Uh, Peter and I decided to, to do, do a seminar on uh, an introduction to chaos magic in Germany. Um, and uh, at the end of that seminar, in the course of that, we formally founded the magical pact of the Illuminates of Tenretoros in a, an extinct uh, volcano crater in the Rhineland. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that is how the IoT, as it is, as it became known, actually really came about because that uh, people really latched on. I mean, talking about live and null, when I published it, you know, I thought, well, okay, how how much uh, uh, how am I going to do this? So I I set up a prescription uh, sub subscription kind of. Uh, 
uh, of thing. And uh, I wanted to publish 100, 100 copies, and they were sold out within a week or two. Wow. And, uh, well, okay, 100 is not a lot, but, uh, but hey, I thought, hey, you went to something. And I actually kept my, my book publishing company and, uh, for, for many years to come. I mean, uh, way beyond live and null and stuff, but, but, um, but that actually set me up not for, I mean, from being a bookseller at the time to uh, becoming a publisher as well. Uh, anyway, uh, that uh, IoT caught on fairly fast uh, in the German-speaking world, and uh, uh, from then on, we actually, you know, organized uh, the IoT proper and uh, organized seminars and and uh, annual meetings, uh, you, which would usually take place in Austria in some castle, one castle or another. Uh, they have so many there, so, <laughs> so, so we're actually spoiled for choice. And um, that was that is how my involvement in the IoT uh, actually came to pass. That's a inter very interesting story. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and to kind of help my listeners, there's a you've developed a couple of different uh, contributions and magical concept. You've developed what's called cyber magic and ice magic. Could you just take a moment and for layman explain what cyber magic is? Uh, yes, if you can give me a minute, because first off, I'd like to speak a bit about pragmatic magic. Absolutely. Uh, pragmatic magic, as far as I know, is the term I coined. I, uh, I'm not the, to make this perfectly clear, I'm not the founder of pragmatic magic, as some people have misunderstood my biography. Uh, I'm really the guy who called it that. Uh, and. Uh, I didn't just call the pragmatic magic such, but I, 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 it was a dichotomy I set up in writing one of my first articles in, in uh, Unicorn. I distinguished between pragmatic and dogmatic magic. Point being that uh, dogmatic magic will have a, a set agenda of, let's say, rules or a perceived uh, theological, you might say, uh, or whatever, ontological structures which are deemed to be objective and to which you have to adhere. Uh, like a dogmatic magician will tell you, let's say, uh, love is uh, corresponds to the planet Venus, which corresponds to the uh, color green, which corresponds to the number seven, which corresponds to the metal copper, for example. That is one. It's not the only one, and that's the whole point. Uh, <clears throat> so if you want to do a love spell or, so, or some, some kind of love ritual or whatever, you have to, uh, you know, uh, use these correspondences, like invoke Venus and uh, work with copper and have a green temple and uh, seven or seven green candles, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is fine, which can work, uh, that's that's okay. The problem arises when people say this is the only way it is fine, this is the only way that it works. The uh, what, what caused me to, to think about pragmatic magic was that looking beyond the confines, let's say, of Western magical tradition, or let's say Golden Dawn magical tradition, which is anything but the entirety of Western magical tradition, it's just a little slab of it. Uh, if we look beyond that, if we look, for example, especially if we look in, you know, beyond that into other cultures like African cultures or Caribbean cultures or Asian cultures or whatever, 
we find, you know, sorcerers there or medicine men or shamans or whatever you want to call them or whatever they may call themselves, uh, doing love spells without Venus, without the num using the number seven, without using the colors, the, the color green or, or uh, the metal copper or uh, doing it on a Friday. Uh, and if we assume that they are at least as good as we are in actually achieving our aims with magic, or as bad as whatever, <laughs> uh, uh, then there, then it cannot it cannot really be the dogma which which makes the difference. There must be something different. And so, what I, what I when I said pragmatic magic, I said, basically pragmatic magic has one single dogma: if it works, use it. So it is basically method agnostic to the point that uh, method will only be accepted or uh, or uh, deployed uh, once it has proven itself to be workable, viable, and successful. Well, just even in the way you define it there, to me, pragmatic magic definitely seems more in a line with chaos magic, whereas dogmatic magic seems more caught up in ceremonial magic or some of the, you know, more of like the golden dawn style of magical tradition. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, uh, and we have, you know, some outliers like Austin Osman Spare, who has actually no, no set system of magic and uh, or sorcery, as he prefers to call it, and uh, uh, who does his own thing. And... Uh, uh, he, he was obviously a pretty eccentric guy. Let's put, let's face it. But uh, but uh, at least anecdotally, we know uh, of quite a few magical achievements of his. And anyway, the point being, and you're absolutely right that uh, when when I saw when I was confronted with chaos magic, for me it was actually it's been that to this very day a subset of pragmatic magic in the wider sense. Yes, it is a part, part and parcel of what I would term pragmatic magic, which is what I like about it. Yeah, it fits uh, in the wheelhouse of pragmatic magic. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's, uh, it's not the sum total of pragmatic magic, but then pragmatic magic is just a general term anyway. There, you know, there's no, uh, uh, no set school and academy of pragmatic magic which sets up <laughs> its, its own dogmas again. And that will be uh, counterintuitive. So, uh, yes, and uh, now you asked me about cyber magic. Within the uh, discussion of chaos magic, um, we uh, uh, came to uh, discuss a lot about a lot of information theory, and uh, especially Peter Carroll was uh, was very much, you know, involved in in, in uh, quantum, uh, you know, analyzing quantum physics and and trying to to uh, bridge that in some way with magical practice. Uh, however successful, uh, it's up to debate, but that's another question. Anyway, uh, within that discussion of. Uh, Taking information as uh, as a medium of uh, magical uh, or uh, yeah magical effect of, of causing magical effect, uh, um, I developed let's say an experimental concept. It isn't more much more than that, uh, which I then termed cyber magic. Uh, to give you an illustration of what this actually means, uh, I'll, I'll I'll give you a simple example. If you take a 
a screen, be it a video screen, a TV screen, or uh, or, or, your, or your computer screen, and you ha don't have a channel feed to it. All you see is, you know, white noise. Uh, what is white noise? This is actually electrons, you know, flitting about in a, in a chaotic manner, chaotic in the sense that you cannot reliably project or uh, uh, um, calculate which electron will be at what point within that frame of the, uh, of the screen uh, at what given time. Uh, it's arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to have a TV, let's, let's take TV as, as, a, as a commonly understood example. In order to have, actually have a face on that TV screen, these electrons need to, well, in, you know, in, in, in quotes, know they need to be told uh, how to organize themselves. And that, what, which tells them how or makes them organize themselves or tells them how to do it, you know, in a kind of anthropomorphic way of putting it, um, uh, that's called information. So basically information is uh, something that uh, makes matter organize or reorganize itself and uh, which can or could, at least that's the theory, um, cause effects on the material level. So it's almost and giving so, magical so, properties to the intersection of magic and technology? Well, what we did, uh, but that was more the, the German section, German-speaking section of the of the IoT at the time. The the Brits at that time were pretty technophobic, um, <laughs> I have to say, and they didn't have computers and and, and this and the other. Whereas we, we were you know already using email. Hey, there was still you know build bulletin board systems, mm -hmm. stuff like that pre-internet. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we but we were plugged in that sense. Uh, oh. Well, and yes, and then we we try to we, we try to you know uh, doing rituals via computer and uh, using the the technology as an interface. Absolutely, well, yes. Well, what comes to mind right away for me is the uh, electronic sigil makers that they have out there now, and you can put in your intent, and it'll make the sigil for you. Yes, I know. I know. I mean, uh, I, I have my contention, my beef with that. But uh, but but essentially, what we at the time did was trying to find a way to to um, uh, charge sigils subliminally. Uh, you know, handmade sigils, but you know, uh, overlaying mm -hmm. them with uh, with uh, with uh, you know uh, rapid movement graphics, uh, so that so that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't be able to actually see them consciously uh, when you uh, while you were kind of charging them. Well, much in the same vein of what we're talking about, it, it, it's like the uh, using uh, technology to incorporate that with your magic is would that be somewhat cyber magic do we, absolutely yeah like yeah, uh, for, yeah. Exa for example while we're talking about uh you know austin spar the fact that like uh you have uh what is his name By byron grissom i think he was also yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah german yeah, and he yeah. and uh he made that uh 
the Dream Maker machine, I think it was called. I'm, I'm not sure he was he was a Ger a German. I always thought he was a Brit, but never mind. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah, that Dream Maker machine. Uh, Burroughs was into that kind of stuff as yes. well to, for a while. And, and, and now what's out there is these electronic devices. You can get a program for your phone, or there's even like just like a website that you can go to, and you can set the. Uh, rate of the light flickering and everything. Exactly, so, S strobe effects and stuff like that. Yeah. So would you say using the elements of technology to further your magic would be cyber magic? Uh, yes, it can be. Of course, uh, the the idea, and I said it hasn't, it, it never became more than kind of an experimental kind of uh, of uh, approach to it. Uh, I mean, I never developed it in the sense that you that that I wrote the Bible of cyber magic, where you can read all about it, and uh, <laughs> and don't don't you dare disbelieve me. No, nothing, nothing like that. Uh, what we did initially, it was actually uh, with, within uh, IoT uh, events, um, uh, we would uh, experiment, for example, with the transfer of um, foreign languages to people. Like uh, uh, one, one guy, uh, okay, let's say myself, who would be fairly fluent in English, uh, would, uh, would attempt to transfer some of that English uh, onto someone who is less, less fluent in English. And and see what happened. And uh, by what uh, so we, by what method were you conveying this? Well, uh, that, that that was of course the the the, the question. What I at that time uh, was about. I <laughs> I developed a concept of what I called the the, the golf club chakra. <laughs> the golf club chakra is basically your brain plus your spine. If you if you draw a line around that, it looks very much like a golf club, right? That's why. Yes. That's, that's why. You, you just kind of got the medulla oblongata and then that straight exactly. line running down your spine. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so what I uh, what I uh, would do and others would uh, would do was uh, to actually activate that as a as a whole, and then transfer that tr try to transfer that information to the to the other guy and activate his golf club club uh, chakra <laughs> as well, and. Uh, Basically, that 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 is it already. I mean, the, the, the exactly the, the concept behind it. Of course, that's the important point is that it's actually information that gets gets transferred. Now, this isn't <clears throat> isn't quite as novel as it may seem, because when you look at Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, you have all these transmission lines. You have that in Vedic culture as well, where the guru will sit down with his or his favorite uh, pupil, you know, uh, before a guru is about to die or, or hop off to, to uh, Maha Nirvana or whatever, uh, and transfer his or her knowledge to the pupil, to the student, and uh, then, then leave the earthly realm or shuffle off from his mortal coil, as Shakespeare puts it. And uh, so essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they are using my golf club chakra. That, that's not the point. The point is that the, the concept itself isn't really actually new. It's actually age old. Uh, and it addresses another interesting point. It's uh, basically the question of how do we ever learn about the world? Because it's, it's not just our sensible uh, knowledge. It's not just our laboratory or scientific experiment kind of knowledge. Uh, when a shaman meets a good shaman, at least, I mean, there are probably a lot of bad shamans around as well. I mean, pe <laughs> people who don't they, know they, this they, they can't all be the best. 
Absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's like in any other trade. I mean, uh, you have good good people or excellent uh, genius level people, and you have others who are just mediocre or less. Yeah. But okay, uh, when a good shaman actually encounters a new plant, let's say, be it in the jungle or wherever, and suddenly can tell you after a while of staring at it or whatever, at least that's all you can see from the outside, can tell you this plant, this plant, this herb or whatever it is, is good for this and that or bad against for, for this and that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, let's assume for, just for argument's sake that it turns out, he turns out or she turns out to be right. This begs the question of how the hell did they learn about it? How the hell did they find out about it? Uh, one way of uh, describing this, it's not really an explanation, it's just a description, is saying, well, apparently, uh, Set Shaman uh, kind of got the information from that, that plant and uh, was able to voice it after that, was able to, to put it into a concept, uh, translate it into the human language so that we can say, oh, okay, we'll use this plant for this and that, or we'll avoid it because it could cause this and that uh, negative effect or whatever. And uh, I, because we are usually used to uh, to uh, laboratory technology, like, uh, you know, the, the common conceit and myth, as I would say, is that, you know, well, you know, these uh, uh, shamanic cultures, they've had thousands and thousands of years of uh, trial and error to find out which plant is healthy and which one isn't, isn't wholesome. Ah, uh, bullshit. Well, uh, tribes okay. weren't that weren't that big. Yeah. You couldn't really do thousands and thousands of uh, like you do in laboratories today. Thousands and thousands of experiments with control groups and whatever. Uh, yes, I mean that may have happened. Of course, there's a lot of you know folklore experience. People find out the hard way. Uh, you better not eat that mushroom, mushroom because it can actually kill you or whatever. Uh, yes, that happens as well. But uh, but what I'm talking about is is a, is a different approach to knowledge, and uh, I think that uh, describing it in a cyber magical in cyber magical terms, uh, it's, again, it doesn't really explain the mechanics, but uh, but it makes a lot of more sense. Understood. Now I want to change gears a little bit. And I don't want to talk about it much because everybody always asks you about this particular uh, item, ice magic. <laughs> now, you in your book, Ice Magic First Insights, I could never say it in German. <laughs> uh, you critique <laughs> conventional magic. Could you uh, give us your views on the shortcomings of conventional magic and your proposed deconstructive approach to magic? Well, you're right that it is a deconstructionist work. And um, actually, the as I said, when I, when I defined pragmatic magic, I said pragmatic magic has only one dogma. If it works, use it. Okay, so if it doesn't work, what happens then? Well, don't discard use it. Discard it. Yeah. Discard it, exactly. And that's where I've heard before in chaos magic too. Like, you, you know, I don't know if... It, uh, like uh, early on, it was like, uh, use what works, you know, discard yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. Now in Vice Magic, uh, I actually follow on on this, uh, this basic proposition by, by actually asking, does it actually work? And now this depends, of course, on your definition of work. What does that actually mean? 
Um, is a 51% success rate sufficient to say it works? Is a 59% success rate? Is a 99% success rate equivalent to saying it works? And I say no, uh, it's either 100% or nothing. So if it works I'm, one, so if it works one in a hundred times, it's not a valid method. Well, it isn't a valid method if it only works ninety-nine out of a hundred times. Right. That's the whole point. Why? Not because I'm a maximalist and, and say, well, it has to be uh, all or nothing, baby, and uh, otherwise I'm, I'm not willing to talk to you. Mm -hmm. No, it's because uh, what I'm really concerned with, uh, what Ice Magic is really uh, concerned with, is uh, human powerlessness. And uh, we all know, I think, from conventional magic uh, that, well, <laughs> it sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, right. Maybe that's why, that, that's why we journal and we read about other people's experiences. And, you know. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, our, uh, our, fo our follies, you know. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, so... If it doesn't, can you actually say it works? No, you can't, obviously not. But, uh, but again, it, it depends on, on where, how you define your standards. Mm -hmm. And what I do in, in, in uh, Eismagie uh, Erste Einblicke, as it is pronounced in German, <laughs> it has, hasn't been translated yet. I'm still working on that, but uh, so there'll be a, a tra translation coming. Well, only, should, only you should uh, do that translation. Yes, sure. uh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, the, one of the reasons why it's taking so long is that I'd be, I had basically to reinvent the entire German language to write it in German in the first place. Now, doing that in English is, is quite another task, uh, but okay. And and uh, you, know, you know much more than me that translation is key. I mean, uh, how many times have we had to have uh, new translations because the first person was horrible at translating Latin or horrible at translating uh, the language that they worked on. Well, there's this Italian saying, traditore traditore, means the translator is always a traitor. <laughs> and Because uh, he's never going to do it justice. Never, never really. And uh, so, uh, you know, all you can do is approximate, really, and uh, it depends on the text. I mean, yes, Google Translate is okay if you want to see, hey, what's written on this Chinese loo. Mm -hmm. uh, right, fine. right, but it, it's the same as text messaging, too. Like, you could send me a message just like, hey, what's going on? But mm -hmm. I could read it like, hey, what's going on? It could be aggressive. It could be... Or it yeah, could there's be, no nuance. Or it could it. be laissez-faire. Yeah, it's like... That's why you use emojis and stuff like that, you know. Uh, uh, you're Absolutely. all wrong. You're all wrong. And if I to put a smiley behind that, you know, hey, okay, he's not really accusing me of being wrong. He's being funny or trying to be. That's right. But yes. but anyway, the nuances are, are quite critical. And uh, yes, and again, I've <laughs> I've been doing that half my life as a, for a profession. So uh, t yes. tell me about failure. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the, the point about, uh, again, about ice magic is that um, it addresses the question of human powerlessness on very many levels, not merely the technical level of, say, uh, how to, to conduct a spell or, uh, or whatever. Uh, and it, it, it raises very fundamental and, fun yeah, you might say fundamentalist questions. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. Uh, 
puppets or voodoo dolls as they're usually called uh, so people will tell you you know okay you you you, you make a puppet you uh, kind of link it to the uh, to the target pe person or the victim whatever uh -huh. uh, and then you take a needle and you prick it and uh, you prick it a hundred times yeah it could be hey you could be doing uh, you know uh, telepathic uh, acupuncture i mean to heal the other guy it doesn't have to be negative right mm -hmm. but uh uk in horror movies it's usually something something nefarious something something evil uh, but whatever the, but i asked the question well can you actually move a needle a hundred times can you actually move a needle and actually hit your target can you actually do that right because uh, as it turns out, if you actually try it, you'll find out, no, it's, 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 it's again, it's nothing but hit and miss. And that's easy, easy to, to check out. I mean, you know, just, just take a needle and take a piece of paper and put a circle on it, a little dot, and then say, okay, that's my target, and try to hit that dot 10 times in a row yeah. without stopping. And you'll never do it. You'll... Nope. No, absolutely, I agree. So how can you expect... If, and that's another point of ice magic. Ice magic defini defines, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of definitions of magic around. Ice magic defines magic is doing the impossible. Uh, and, okay. I've heard, and I've heard you say that before when people have asked you, like, what your definition of magic is. Yeah. My, magic is doing the impossible because look at the myths, look at legends. Uh, sagas or whatever when when sorcerers or magicians or whatever you want to call them uh, appear there they'll do things that are impossible that are impossible to do be it walk, walk over, walking over water or making someone ill you know just by thinking of them right and uh and that's what magic is about now if you try to approach magic, and that's where the deconstructionist part of ice magic comes in, if you try to approach magic with a technology which is based on nothing but doing the possible, how is that ever going to match? And I don't care if you have a success rate of 99.9999%. If it's not 100%, that, in my view, is uh, is still an indication that you're not actually doing the you're not actually doing the impossible. You're still within the confines of the possible. Because the impossible would would be to be perfect every time. For example, for example, which is why you know uh, which is something that's which is something that's impossible to be perfect every. That's the point. Exactly. Right, right. And that's what magic is about. So, so for me, the sorcerer or the magician is always someone who's on the brink, on the liminal brink, on the verge of the impossible. Once the sorcerer has done something which is impossible, it has obviously converted into becoming possible. Well, it sounds so, very scientific method-ish uh, also. You know, it's like... Uh, uh, in science, you have to rep, you have to do these causes or these conditions to create this effect. And theoretically, anybody should be able to create those same surroundings and environment and get the same results. Exactly. Yeah, that that is our common uh, common uh, understanding and, of and what is it, scientific. 
and it's and if it doesn't work then it's not a proven scientific method that's right yeah and i'm not trying to you know sing the song of science here so much but i do um but there's parallels to, say, to that there's yeah, parallels I make, I, to that. I make both to say that we are well advised to not ignore science and not pretend that science is you know uh more, more or less a happenstance thing which you know kind of occurred but uh, in reality um uh magic or the esoteric the occult or whatever uh has known stuff all along because i mean that was a common conceit you know back in the end of the 19th century uh, right up to the the end of the the 20th century among many magicians uh thinking that well you know basically we are you know we are actually employing a science which has not yet been discovered, but which hopefully will be discovered one day. Yeah, it kind of reminds me again of alchemy becoming chemistry. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Alistair Crowley went for that uh, shit, if you pardon my French, uh, as well, <laughs> as well. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you'll find uh, you'll find uh, Crowley reflecting on scientism and uh, reflecting on. Uh, well, you know, turn of the century, I mean, 19th or to the 20th century, uh, reflecting on on how science isn't everything, how science is only addressing part of reality, part of the world, with a very, very limited uh, view. And I mean, one thing, you, you say whatever you like about Alistair Crowley, but he was fairly well-versed in terms of science. Mm -hmm. He was a pretty good mathematician. <clears throat> he knew about chemistry for all the wrong reasons, maybe, but whatever. <laughs> uh, 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 he, he was he was pretty much up to date with what was uh, considered science in the in, in his day, and he says, "Well, the, these these disciplines only address half of the uh, of the medal. We're looking at the other side of the medal. Religion does. That's why he called his uh, or named his uh, his magazine Equinox uh, uh, or had this motto: uh, uh, the method of science, the aim of religion. But then he says, on the in the same vein, in, in that same same paragraph, he says, well, you know, actually. The Kabbalah is just as scientific as his chemistry, is just as scientific as his mathematics. So, I mean, you can't have it both ways. He was trying to, you know, uh, upend science and say, well, look, what we're doing is science too. Ha ha, gotcha. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, well, basically, and, and for me, um, from an ice magical point of view, to cut matters short, is... Uh, all this relates to is yeah he, here you have another guy who's trying to manage uh the science of the possible right. nothing more nothing less now let's briefly just talk about the ice magic wars this was what in the early 1990s this occurred yes indeed and uh well as it happened, it was it was uh, still with the heyday of the of the magical pact, and uh, I happened to hear about uh, a guy up in northern Germany who was an accomplished martial artist. But I never, I mean, he never written anything, uh, published anything, as far as I knew at that time. I mean, he actually had, but I only found out later. And. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there were rumors about him that he had some, you know, kind of very weird um, powers, uh, but all more or less restricted to the martial arts uh, kind of environment. 
and framework. And when I was in Berlin, uh, he actually, he had heard of me because I had written a, 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 um, an article, a three-part article on combat magic. And uh, uh, he wrote me a letter inviting me over to uh, uh, do an interview with me for his uh, magazine on martial arts. And um, so, uh, uh, well, that's how we met. And for a while, for a couple of years, he actually became my teacher because he was actually able to to uh, demonstrate stuff which uh, was really the stuff of legends within the martial arts scene, but even more than that. Anyway, uh, he and I finally agreed that uh, if I were to actually, you know, uh, communicate some of the stuff he had taught, he had shown me, we had talked about uh, in public, uh, I would give that the name Ice Magic. That was my name, I, I, my, my moniker, I attached to it, but he was okay with that. But uh, on the understanding that Ice Magic wasn't describing what he did, it was describing what I did. He, mean, right. he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be reined in by me or by, by whatever I was gonna, going to do about it. Anyway, I was in the IoT at the time, and uh, hey, and I, I found this very exciting, uh, to put it mildly. And so I talked to a few people about it, and they were interested in that as well. And some people said, "Okay, can can we can we meet sometime and, and talk talk in more in depth about it, you know, for a weekend or so?" And so I conducted a meeting, uh, which we termed the Saturnalia of Chaos. It was actually four days or five days in a row, uh, and uh, met with those people who were interested in that. Now Peter Carroll uh, kind of. Uh, went bonkers he really went ballistic because he <laughs> thought he thought that i was trying to, to put it put it shortly he was he thought that i was trying to to rip off the uh, entire iot under his uh, under his feet oust him and whatever and take over control of that uh, of that uh, uh, order at that time i was head of the german speaking section which entailed germany switzerland and austria um Interestingly enough, uh, shortly before, I had actually announced that one year on, I would actually step down from that. I would step down from being head of the German-speaking section. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so much for my wanting to, uh, <laughs> to uh, go up the ranks. Anyway, uh, long story short again, this escalated. Uh, and if you want my view on it, I think he was... He was uh, psychologically very, very disturbed at the time and very, very paranoid. And uh, what it basically ended in was the breakup of the IoT. About 80% of the IoT's membership left the order because of that. We set up actually an alternative order, not through my choosing, but there was no other choice, uh, which we called the revolutionary IoT or riot for short. And um, but I never headed that actually. I was there with a, with the found at the founding of that organization, and um, people uh, when people asked my advice, I gave it to them. But I didn't didn't take any leader, leading uh, leading function within that order, uh, and uh, that was it. But uh, basically, this was about uh, because Peter Carroll had got it in his head that somehow. I was involved with some some uh, 
right-wing, racist, neo-Nazi kind of uh, guru who wanted to take over the IoT, which was all one big load of bull. And uh, and I, from what I hear, he was actually quite surprised when he found out that, <laughs> that even when we when we set up riot, uh, that I that I wasn't taking any leading role in that organization, and uh, it all it all fell apart. And uh, but he's still ranting about how he saved uh, the IoT. Yes, if losing if losing percent if losing eighty percent of your membership is saving something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I, that, uh, those statistics just don't work out for me. You know? Not not for me, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely uh, losing eighty percent. Yeah, from something that really didn't have to be. No, it wouldn't. It didn't have to be anyway. But, but in terms of fraternity's attorney. Uh, <clears throat> the then time uh, Grandmaster was a close friend of mine who'd been part of the Bond group and so on I told him about this stuff as well you know what I'd encountered in northern Germany with my teacher and um, but uh, after my experience with the IoT uh, I did everything I could to keep that ice magic thing out of the FS in order to avoid the same kind of shit happening again. Right. And I, I think I, fair, I, I succeeded because uh, this never happened there. And um, uh, I, act, I actually took a, <clears throat> took a sabbatical from, from the FS uh, just to keep, you know, uh, let, let uh, things slow down because many FS members were also IoT members. So you couldn't really hide it from them what had happened. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, um, I made sure that uh, this kind of um, destructive social dynamics uh, wouldn't happen within the fraternity's attorney. I'm going to pause us one second. I have to use the restroom. Yeah, fine. Same here. Okay. Yeah, let's, soon. let's take a little break. <laughs> okay, fine.
So back to the races. Yeah, hey, how you doing? <laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll, we're almost finished up. We actually covered everything that I sent you. So just <laughs> I, I, I'm, lear I'm learning in interviews when I set up my questions too to have they kind of just fall into each other, you know, and I don't even have to ask the question because we kind of just roll right into it. So that's oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, okay. So I want to talk about uh, currently what, what's going on. What projects or endeavors are you currently passionate about both in the occult and in your professional life? Well, professionally, I've more or less retired. Well, I'll do the occasional, uh, well, I've always been a freelance translator, so I'll do the occasional freelance translation job uh, if some, something pops up. But uh, uh, on the occult uh, angle, what I'm currently working on is a book on uh, experiential gnosis. Uh, it actually consists or will consist of um, uh, 52 one for for each week per year <laughs> 52 uh quotes quotations from either classical gnostic literature or from authors who are in one way or another um, aligned with gnosis or or have some gnostic views uh which are then uh enhanced uh, to be into meditations of sorts Plus, there'll be some explanatory chapters and, and uh, uh, the odd essay covering this, that, and the other, like uh, history of the nose of Gnosticism or or uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, the role of this or that in Gnosticism. Anyway, uh, it, the current working working title is uh, Abraxas Calling, a breviary. Uh, I'm uh, currently writing it in German, but I'll translate it into English myself as well. And uh, if my publishers uh, are willing to uh, to have it, fine. And if not, uh, if I can't find someone to publish it, I'll pro probably publish it myself. We'll see. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you also, too, you you go by Frauder UD, Frauder VD, and also uh, just by Ralph. Uh, yep. And <laughs> is there, what delineates what you write under which uh, surname? Well, uh, I started off as Frater VD, but well, actually, it's actually UD. It's actually, as in English now these days, uh, uh, it's actually the Roman U, which was written as a V. It's as actually a v. Uh, an abbreviation of my magical motto, Ubiquidemon, Ubiquidius, meaning the demon is in everything, or the devil, if you will, <laughs> and the god is in everything. And... Um, However, when uh, my American publishers approached me the first time to, uh, to do uh, uh, my uh, practical city magic in, in English, uh, uh, and they, they knew about my other stuff as well. And anyway, we came to the, uh, to the agreement that for someone who had written a handbook of sex magic, it might not be the best of ideas to use the name VD <laughs> in English. <laughs> Smart marketing person. See, see, and uh, that's that's why we changed. We switched it to UD in English. But again, it's it's, it's not really a switch. 
But yes, so basically to answer your question, uh, Frater UD is, if you will, if you will, my my international persona, my non-German speaking persona, <laughs> Frater VD is is uh, is uh, restricted to the German speaking world, and. Um, but yes, that's my that's where where I where I write about uh, occult topics, usually magic, yeah. and um, yeah, like whereas some of... I have some other I have some other pseudonyms as well, which uh, don't matter here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where I write, I've written, they, I have do, written other stuff, but they do have their place. They have their place, yes. For example, I I wrote some uh, some uh, some uh, fantasy novels under the name of Victor Sobek. And um, uh, it's a bit, bit like Fernando Pessoa, the great Portuguese uh, poet of the uh, 20th century, who's actually a friend of Elsa Crodi's as well, uh, who uh, became famous under four different names, actually, you know, award-winning in everything. Uh, wow. um, my Brazilian uh, reader once told me at, at uni that Fernando Pessoa was the four most famous poets in the Portuguese language. Uh, of the 20th century, he called them not pseudonyms but heteronyms, and I think that's quite a nice, uh, nice touch. That's why I'm mentioning him. Uh, uh, it's actually heteronyms in the sense that uh, uh, not VD and UD so much, but the other names. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of persona, and mm. uh, which uh, which incorporates this. Now, looking back at your extensive contributions to the occult field, I mean, you've wrote many books, uh, books on money magic, living magic, sex magic, how to defend yourself against magical attacks. Yep. Uh, uh, what do you hope that your legacy will be? And how do you envision the future of occultism long after we're gone? My legacy, well, let's put it this way. If I've contributed to people adopting a fairly rational, not rationalist, but rational, a fairly sober approach, if, approach towards all things occult, really, no matter which. Uh, uh, one which isn't so much, you know, uh, inhibited by by ideology or uh, faith uh, issues and stuff. Uh, I think that will be quite would be quite an achievement. I'm not sure that I have actually accomplished that, but but uh, I put it this way once. Uh, I, I once set out to prove that you don't have to be an idiot to go into practical magic. And uh, whatever my detractors think about me, no one's ever called me an idiot. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's always the first time, I guess. But, but, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, mean, meaning that you, you know, you don't have to be a dimwit, a halfwit, or whatever to to actually take these. Uh, these disciplines seriously, and uh, there's very, very many ways to look at them, or you know, as they say, many ways to skin a cat. But uh, uh, but uh, the the whole point is that uh, I think this is actually an enrichment of uh, of our lives if we actually deal with these disciplines as well. And if I've helped contribute a bit towards that, that uh, viewing this as an enrichment and not just as some some you know uh, weirdo agenda of people who don't wash and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, have long hair and, uh, and you know what what they said about the hippies in that in that day you know yes uh, that that kind of uh, of thing um, uh, then I think uh, that's that's a fairly fairly uh, 
good accomplishment. Yeah. As for how do I see occultism evolve? Hey, I'm not a psychic, uh, much as I'd like to be sometimes, but... Um, but you've been involved in it for a very long time. Yeah, that's and true. The, I mean, in the 70s and the 80s, I mean, uh, do you feel that today it's at a... At a do, are more people aware of magic these days than 20 or 30 years ago? Um, yes, but on different levels. For one, uh, let's let's take uh, religious sciences or comparative religious sciences. Uh, when I wrote my master's thesis, this was an occultism and eroticism in uh, turn of the century of fantasy literature. At that time, in the, within that master's thesis, I actually had to spend about a third of my thesis on actually outlining what occultism actually is, because the professors who entrusted me with, uh, with thought I was good enough to do it, even though they knew squat about occultism, uh, they thought I could pull it off, and I actually did. But, but you know, I had to explain everything. Uh, this kind of thing uh, has changed, because for the past, let's say, two or three decades, uh, uh, academic study into these uh, fields of esotericism, Western esotericism, Eastern esotericism, um, and and others uh, have actually evolved tremendously. So there's a lot and a lot of academic study on the subject, uh, and I I really uh, welcome that because most of it is very very good. Obviously, a lot of it is highly specialized and not interesting for everyone and. That, that's how academia is, but uh, but uh, but it is being taken seriously, not in the sense that hey, yeah, now lots of professors think that magic actually works. No, they don't. But they see that it is an important part of human culture. They see that it is something that has been neglected at our own peril for too long. And if you want to understand how human humanity works, how societies work, even how politics work to some extent, uh, you'd better take that into account as well and not ignore it as uh, as you know uh, some, uh, some 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 dumbos uh, um, uh, entertainment uh, stuff. Well, I think you even said it before, whether we were talking about medicine men or shaman or, you know, uh, down the road, there's always been kind of that magical connection in, in, in the human experience. So there has, and for me, magic has always been, a, been about survival, human maybe, survival. Maybe even before any type of organized religion, I would think it was more like that ma magic Ab presence. Ab absolutely, absolutely. I think religion actually came about when people started, uh, you know, mimicking real sorcerers. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the one of the mainstays of all big religions is actually creating a monopoly on what on magic. Yes, and and, and that's why basically, you know, I mean. Christianity really shunned magic, you know, they wanted all the power. They, they, well, wanted, they, they wanted the source of power to elate yourself, you know. They shunned all magic except the magic they could uh, monopolize. Well, so I don't think they want people out there becoming their own gods and things of such. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that's another, another big issue about Gnosticism and everything, absolutely. But anyway, I, I don't know uh, whether more people are aware of magic beyond the academic uh, sector probably yes but, but that part of that is due to the internet 
quite obviously, because we're far better connected these days and faster in our connectivity uh, than we were, let's say, in the 70s or even in the 90s. Agreed. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people can, you know, communicate with each other and exchange views and share stuff, and uh, that yes. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it's also becoming atomized a lot. I mean, like uh, you have a lot, hell of a lot of, you know, different minuscule kind of approaches here, there, and the other. And uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that you could say overall that there is such such a thing as a magical scene at the moment internationally. Now, obviously, there's a lot of people who know one and know each other and uh, occasionally meet or, or exchange ideas and stuff. But, but, uh, but there's hardly... Uh, uh, a scene like a subculture. Right. Uh, in my previous podcast that I just did with my uh, most recent guest, uh, Aaron Dell Overman, and mm -hmm. uh, he said just even the fact of like uh, people watching Harry Potter, you know, you have uh, multi millions of people who live in India that knew nothing about Western esotericism, but they all love Harry Potter now. And now that's kind of introduced them to this western esoteric magic system and is actually creating an interest in in places like india for seeking out western esotericism that is true uh, actually it's it, in in, the, in some view manner it actually mirrors what theosophy did in the 19th century to india Right. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Know. So, so, so Blavatsky adopted a lot of Indian stuff and this that, and the other, but she actually came from an Egyptian point of view originally. And, uh, and then theosophy, of course, is the, you might say the mother of all Western esotericism from the 19th century on. And, uh, and yeah, it created a great, great, the first guy who actually told me about theosophy was a Pakistani. Interesting. And, uh, and, uh, okay, so, uh, he was a Zoroastrian, a Parsi, but, uh, but never, wasn't a Muslim, but, but hey, he knew all about it and, and he, he, uh, introduced me to it. And, uh, and yes, I mean, uh, I, I, that is another point, the point that, uh, we are, to talk about globalization. I mean, this is happening in this field as well. You just mentioned Muslim. I just want to quickly ask, have you ever looked into any kind of Sufi magic? Uh, to a little extent, but not very extensively. And uh, um, so essentially the answer would really be to a practical purposes. No, I mean, I've read about it. I've talked to people, uh, done some dervish dancing myself and, and so on, but, uh, uh, but nothing really serious, no. Interesting. Well, the you've really given me such a wonderful interview. And just in closing, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there any particular message or insight that you would like to share with aspiring occultists or those that are interested in exploring the magical arts? Well, she is the former publisher, the former bookseller, and the not so for quite former writer speaking. <laughs> uh, if the if I had to put it in into three words, I would say read, read, and read. Uh, you can't read enough. Uh, still to this day, even though we and we have this wonderful podcast like your own now, and uh, and videos and and lots of channels on YouTube and quite a lot of exchange in the social media as such. 
but um, a lot of the stuff um, uh, is uh, really only available via reading. I'm not talking books only. I'm talking uh, articles and and uh, academic papers and so on. Uh, what it basically boils down to expand your horizons as best you can. And uh, then don't, don't take anybody's word for granted, my, my own included, obviously, uh, but uh, see what works and uh, stick with that. Words of wisdom. <laughs> Common sense, as they call it, isn't it? <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> Prodder UD, Ralph, Prodder VD, thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, come on Magister Dixit very happy to have had you on the show oh thanks for the invitation uh, i was glad to have been here great and i definitely have to have you back i'm just anytime <laughs> that's awesome thank you very much okay thanks bye <laughs> <laughs>